Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word and what it means to us today. I pray that you would use the book of Philippians in our lives as you did in the lives of the Philippians. Help us to understand it and apply it to our lives and help us to, to learn how to think because of the book of Philippians. Help us to see Christ more clearly, more gloriously, uh, exalted to the position that he deserves. And I pray that you would receive glory in our time here this morning. So it's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, uh, so quick poll. How many of you were involved in the small group Bible study that we did earlier this year through the book of Philippians? Show of hands. Okay, so a lot of us were in that study, and I, I was a part of that study as well. Um, I think both you and I are probably fairly familiar with Philippians because of that study and just because of our life experiences. Um, I had the privilege of being in two different small groups, and then I taught through Philippians at uh, the retirement apartments where Sylvia Miller um, is staying. And so this is actually the fourth time that I've been through the book of Philippians this year. And I have to admit, when I was starting to study and prepare and get ready for this, I kind of had the thought, okay, I, I know Philippians, I'm familiar with this, this is going to be kind of just droll. Um, and I, again, I admit, as I was going through it, as I studied once more, I was really reminded how deep and rich and useful the Word of God is, even on the third or fourth or beyond time through it in a small time period. So I hope that even as you all are familiar with the book of Philippians, to whatever level that may be, that this wouldn't just be review, but that this would be a really good time to dig into the Word of God, see it richly, see it dip deeply, um, and help apply it to our lives. So Philippians is one of the most encouraging books in the Bible. It's very encouraging. Paul speaks a lot about joy, and he reminds us of uplifting truths for our lives today. And I think, I would guess that if you asked 10 different Christians what their favorite verse in Philippians would be, you could legitimately get 10 different answers. Because there's so many quotable truths in the book of Philippians that are really helpful for our lives. And I, as I said, I would expect that you guys are familiar with the book of Philippians, perhaps more than some of the other books that we've gone through in this Sunday school class, but I hope that you're encouraged by looking through it once more this morning. Now, before we get into the book of Philippians, let's kind of set the context for what this book is. So the book is called Philippians because Paul wrote it to the church in the city of Philippi. So Philippi was the chief city in the region of Macedonia, which is today modern Greece. So this is the, actually the first church that was established in modern Europe. Before that, it had been in Israel, Syria, Turkey, that region, and Asia. Now the gospel is actually moving into Europe. So Philippi was important for one reason, because there was a road called the Ignatian Way that went through the entire uh, Roman Empire, from Rome in the west to the eastern part of the kingdom. And that road, the Ignatian Way, came through Philippi. So if you wanted to travel through the Roman Empire, you went through Philippi. It was a very important city. And it was the home of many prominent families. There was a lot of uh, affluent people there because Philippi was the, a site that, uh, after a war about 60 years earlier, that the Caesar had uh, transplanted a lot of the military veterans into the city. So there were Roman citizens, there were affluent people, there were people of prominence in Philippi. And we first see Philippi in Scripture during Paul's second missionary journey in Acts 16. 
So the setup is that the Holy Spirit kept him from preaching in Asia, which is another region in western Turkey. And instead, the Spirit gave Paul a dream, a vision of a man from Macedonia, which is the region that Philippi is in. And this man asked Paul to come to him. He said, we need you to come to Macedonia and help us. So this is the Spirit leading Paul to preach the gospel in Macedonia. And Paul, who was at this point accompanied by Timothy, Silas, and Luke, went to Macedonia, and he began his ministry there in the most prominent city, Philippi. Now, it's interesting that when Paul entered Philippi, he didn't enter the synagogue. Normally, when Paul would go to a city, he would start by preaching the gospel in the synagogue to the Jews. But in Acts 16.12, it says, On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So it seems like there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi, which means that there was less of a Jewish population there than in some of the other cities that Paul visited. And that doesn't mean that there was no Jewish population, because there are still Jewish elements throughout the letter of Philippi that would lead us to believe that there are Jewish believers there. But it's interesting to note that it's a little bit different type of city than some of the other places that Paul has visited. Now, in Acts 16, there were three prominent events, prominent conversions, that shaped the foundation of the church. One happened when Paul went down to the place of prayer, like we just read, and Acts 16.14 said that God opened the mind of Lydia, who was a prominent businesswoman, and who, with the knowledge that she had, worshipped God. So when Paul preached the gospel, it says that God opened her mind to understand the new truth about Jesus Christ, who was the Messiah and the fulfillment of these promises, and she believed and was baptized. That's the first major event. The second is that Paul cast out a demon from a slave girl whose masters were using her ability to make a lot of money from fortune telling. Um, We don't know if that uh, slave girl was converted, but it seems like that's a definite possibility. I I personally think that she probably was converted because of that. Um, But this act is important because it angered her owners enough to instigate a riot and a revolt in the city against Paul and Silas, and so they're thrown into prison. That leads us to the third major event in the foundation of the church in Philippi. When Paul and Silas are in prison, and they're praying and singing praises to God throughout the night, and God sends an earthquake to miraculously release them from prison, which then leads to the jailer and his entire family coming to faith in Christ. So the church at Philippi was founded by the preaching of the word, by God opening the eyes of unlikely people. It's interesting how many women figure prominently into that, and even you can see more women mentioned in the book of uh, Philippians. So by the preaching of the word, the opening the eyes of unlikely people, and by miracles to authenticate Paul's message. Now these events happened on Paul's second missionary journey, which is around 50 AD. Ten years later, Paul is in Rome. He's no longer in Philippi. And Paul is in Rome because he is in prison. So the book of Philippians is written about 10 years after Paul planted the church there, after all of these events took place. Scott told us last week that Paul wrote the letters of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon from his prison cell in Rome. Acts 28.16 kind of gives us some context for what, like his stay in prison. And it says, And when we came into Rome... Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And verse 30 says, He lived there two whole years at his own expense, 
and welcomed all who came to him. So this is the setting for the letter of Philippians. Paul is in prison in Rome under house arrest, but he has to pay the rent. And he has to take care of his own needs. So this isn't a free trip to prison, all expenses paid. This is you going to prison, but you pay all the expenses, even though you don't have any means to work or earn your living. So this is a really tough situation for Paul. And this is actually why Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians. Because the Philippians had heard of Paul's need. They knew that he was in prison and had this financial need. And so they had sent Epaphroditus with a financial gift to help meet the needs for rent, for his living, for his just the money that he needed to live. And so Paul was writing this letter, sending it back with Epaphroditus to say thank you. To thank them for this gracious gift financially that they had given, and also to address some things that Epaphroditus had brought up that were going on in the church. But in large part, the reason that Paul wrote this letter is to say thank you for this gift that they had given. And as Paul writes this letter of thanks, he uses one big theme to express his gratitude and to instruct the body. So this is the major theme of Philippians that we can see. And that theme is that we are to have the right mindset. Paul is writing throughout the book of Philippians to instruct us on how to have the right mindset. Thirteen times in this small letter, Paul uses words like think or consider. He's trying to get us to think a certain way or to view things a certain way. So he's trying to address the type of mindset the believers have. And our, our mindset, what I mean when I say that, is how we interpret events, how we approach life, the kind of the lens that we see things through. And then not only how we see things, but how we interpret them and then do things based on that interpretation. That's our mindset. So the question for us this morning is, do you ever think about how you think? Which that's kind of a tongue twister. But do you ever think about how you think? You could say, have you ever thought about what comprises your mindset or how you see the world and perceive information? It's really important to think about how we think because not only do we want to obey God in our thoughts, so we want to think the right way, but it's important to have the right mindset because that mindset leads to our actions. And so if we're going to follow God in our actions, we need to have the right mindset that leads to those obedient actions. Our thoughts are naturally influenced by our circumstances and by our emotions, or to put it another way, by the world and our flesh. And so our thoughts are not neutral. Our thoughts are always being pressed upon by other influences, which are usually taking us away from the proper mindset. And so in order to have the correct mindset, we need to take a step back and figure out how we're supposed to think. And believers should have a mindset that is shaped by the truths of the gospel. Rather than just listening to the inputs that we're already receiving, we need to be inputting the correct truths. So our spiritual status as believers should shape our mindset. The person and work of Christ should shape our mindset. Truths about the future for believers should shape our mindset. And the glory of God should shape our mindset. And so, to help us with this, throughout the book of Philippians, Paul unpacks how to think about several different areas of life. And we can learn about this mindset both by seeing how Paul evidences it, just implicitly in his own reactions and what he says, and also by listening to the commands that he gives about how we're supposed to think. So we can see this first in chapter 1, if you look down in verse 6. 
So Paul introduces the letter in these first verses, and he tells the Philippians how grateful he is. And then he describes how he's praying for them. And as he does this, we can see how he thinks about sanctification. This is one of those implicit ways where his mindset kind of bleeds through the page. So sanctification is the process of believers growing in holiness after initial conversion. And verse 6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you guys, but for me, this is one of the most encouraging verses in the Bible. Because there's an incredible promise there. That he, which is God, God who began a good work in us, will bring it to completion. After conversion, we are truly saved from our sins, but we are not perfect. And obeying Christ is difficult. Failure is common. And so in the midst of that, it's easy to slip into this false mindset that obeying Christ is not just difficult, but it's actually impossible. That failure is the norm, and it's impossible to obey Christ, truly. And we might even fear that we would disobey so much or so badly that we would lose our status with Christ as a believer. That's a legitimate fear that could come from the difficulty of obeying Christ and growing in holiness. But Philippians 1.6 tells us that God began the process of salvation in us, and God finishes what he starts. He doesn't leave us hanging and says, I got you this far, now it's up to you. So no true believer can ever lose their salvation. That would mean that God has failed. So when we think about sanctification we must remember that the outcome is secure. That's part of having the right mindset, is understanding how sanctification works. Paul next shows how the right mindset affects the way that we think about trials. So he starts with sanctification, then he moves to trials. And in verses 12 through 8, he describes several challenges to his ministry. First of all, he's in prison. And so he can't keep doing the, the ministry that he has been and moving around the world and preaching the gospel. But Paul is not distraught over his chains. He's not frustrated by that. And it's not that he's just putting on a good face saying, well, this is bad, but I'll just grin and bear it and get through it. That's not his mindset. Look at verses 12 through 14. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul is not just gritting his teeth and getting through this. He is excited that he is in chains because he realizes that his imprisonment has served to increase the spread of the gospel and to glorify Christ. First of all, he's been witnessing to the soldiers who are around him because he has the right mindset that says, my chains don't limit me. My chains have just brought me into a new place where I can share the gospel. And then those guards then actually took the gospel to Caesar's palace because these were kind of the elite guards of the kingdom. And so Paul, rather than wallowing in his own self-pity, because he knew that whatever circumstance he was in, he could share the gospel and glorify God, he used this and saw his chains not as a hindrance, but as a new avenue to glorify God. And Paul even rejoiced that his preaching of the gospel to these guards encouraged the believers. And he said that the other believers in Rome had seen his boldness and followed his example of sharing the gospel. So the right mindset for trials means seeing them as opportunities to glorify God, 
not as an opportunity to focus on yourself and how bad off you have it. Paul mentions another trial in verses 15 through 18. He says that some people were sharing the gospel at Paul's expense. So they were shaming him for his imprisonment, sharing the gospel and trying to build up their own following at Paul's expense. And when I read about this, my first reaction is, well, Paul, you should stand up for yourself because obviously you haven't done something wrong. We know that your imprisonment is for Christ. This is a good thing. You should denounce them and stand up for yourself and defend yourself. But Paul says in verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. So because Paul valued the spread of the gospel more than his own character, meaning he was okay with people shaming him if it meant the gospel going out, he could rejoice that people were sharing the gospel in this way. He makes it clear that what the people are doing is wrong. He doesn't endorse that and say, yeah, you should follow this example. But he is so concerned with the spread of the gospel, even at his own expense, that he can rejoice that these people are sharing the true gospel, even though he doesn't look good in the process. So when we, when we read this, we should ask ourselves, am I more concerned with my image or with the spread of the gospel? Because the right mindset means valuing the gospel above everything else, even above our own image. Now, the right mindset also affects the way that we see life and death. Paul famously said in chapter 1, verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul is in prison, and he doesn't know the outcome of his trial. He doesn't know if he's going to keep living after this or if he will die. And since the Philippians were likely concerned over his state, he tells them how he is thinking about the situation. He says, dying is really the better option because that would get me to Christ. And I don't know about you guys, but if I was presented with a choice of life or death, I think for me it would probably be pretty easy to choose life because I would rather not die. (laughs) But Paul doesn't think that way. He says, no, dying would actually be better because that means I get to be with Christ. And that betrays his mindset that he realizes that being with Christ is better than anything else for him. And so he's able to truly say, it's far better for me to die than to keep living because I get to be with Christ. But having the right mindset goes beyond that because it also changed the way that he thought about living. And he says, to live is Christ. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to live is Christ? He says that if he gets to keep living... He will keep glorifying Christ by spreading the gospel. So in his mindset, he's not choosing between life, which is better for him because he gets to keep living and enjoying everything in life, or death, where life ends. He's choosing between being with Christ or continuing to serve Christ. That's what his sanctified mindset has led him to do. And Paul says that even though it would be better for him to die and be with Christ, he would give up that pleasure so that he could continue serving Christ here on earth. He says, it's far better for me to do this, but it's better for the Philippians, and it's better for other people that God can send Paul to go preach the gospel to. So ultimately, he says, while I would rather go and do this and be with Christ, I think I need to keep to stay here on earth. Because his greatest desire that is feeding his mindset is the desire to glorify Christ. So, in chapter 1, Paul addresses uh, his mindset on sanctification, on trials, and then how to think through life and death. 
And as he ends chapter 1 and moves into chapter 2, we see how his mindset affects the way that we should view other people. So Philippians 1.27 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, or sorry, 1 through 2, he says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So Paul tells us that having the right mindset means being unified with other believers. If we're to have the right mindset, we need to include in that the desire to be unified with other believers. Three times in those verses, Paul talks about being of one mind. He's saying that believers should share the same mindset and thus be unified. But that's easier said than done, right? Unity among believers is often desired but rarely achieved. We have so many different backgrounds and opinions and priorities that it's hard to find common ground. Even in a healthy church that I think Redemption Hill is, you can probably think of one or two people here that you struggle to find common ground with, you struggle to be unified with. So how do we achieve unity? How does this mindset practically work out? Well, first, as believers, we need to remember who we all are. We need to remember who we are. In uh, chapter 2, verse 1, it reminds us of the blessings that believers enjoy as a result of Christ's work in our lives. We are all sinners saved by grace that we did not deserve. And now we are all children of God and citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so we have no reason for pride in ourselves. And we have great reason to embrace and accept our other brothers and sisters in Christ who have received the same gift that we have. That brother or sister with whom it may be difficult to get along with is someone that Christ died for. And there's someone that we should be unified with. We can have unity with other believers when we remember who we all are in Christ. And we should also remember our common cause. We're not just all in the same playing field, but we're moving the same direction. Chapter 1, verse 27 says that living worthy of the gospel means striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Christianity is not a solo religion. We need each other to carry out our mission to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. So when we recognize who we are, we can achieve unity. And when we recognize that we really need each other to accomplish the purpose that we have all been given, we can find unity. And then when our mindset is shaped by these truths, we see how we actually carry that out. And if you look in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul gives us instructions on how to achieve this unity. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So having this mindset of unity means putting others before yourselves. It means putting others' interests above yourselves, whether that's their, the needs that they have, the desires that they have, or just the other person in general even if it's not something that they need. It means putting your needs and desires below the needs of desires of others. That's how we achieve unity, by taking the focus off of ourselves and putting it on others and truly loving them in humility. 
And we find an encouragement to display this humility in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. So after Paul gives this command, says, this is how you should act, he says, now here's an example that should encourage you. So look in verse 5 of chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Christ is the ultimate example of humility. He's the ultimate example, and he is the ultimate reason that we should show humility. Jesus humbled himself more than than we could ever do. And he received the glory that only he is worthy of. He is our example of how to sacrifice our own needs and desires for others, and he is our motivation for humbling ourselves to serve others in order to give him the glory that he deserves. So it's really passages like this that are essential to help us build the right mindset, to truly see what Christ did for us, to see that it's not just us going out on our own to do these things that God has commanded, but we're really following in Christ's footsteps. We gain the right mindset by dwelling on truth, and we desperately need to hear the truth of the incarnation. We need to hear about the love that Christ showed to us, the humility that he displayed, and the sacrifice that he gave for us. So in order to build this right mindset, we need to be saturated with truth like this so that we can follow the example of Christ. Now, before we move on to the rest of the letter and see some more examples of the right mindset, there's an important theological concept in chapter 2 that I I want to address really quick. Verses 6 and 7 say that Jesus was in the form of God and that he was equal with God, but he emptied himself when he came to earth. Now, some people take this to mean that Jesus emptied himself of, uh, of his deity when he was incarnated. They say when Jesus came to earth, he stopped being God. That's what it means when he emptied himself. But that, that's heresy. That's incorrect. The Trinity has always existed as one God in three persons, and there wasn't a 33-year period when he was on earth when we stopped having a Trinity and started having a binity because there was only two persons in the Godhead. So that's not what it means that he emptied himself. He didn't cease being God, and he didn't even cease having certain attributes of his Godhood. Rather, Jesus emptied himself actually by adding something to himself. Verse 7 tells us he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So Jesus emptying himself refers to him taking on humanity in addition to his deity. This in itself would have been humiliating, would have been humbling, because the creator had become like the created. Jesus also limited the use of his divine attributes. Not that he ceased having them, but he chose not to exercise them in general when he was on earth. There were times where he expressed that in miracles. So he humbled himself by taking on a human form, by limiting the use of his divine attributes, and 
by dying on the cross. That was the ultimate humiliation. That the creator not just had become like his creation, but had been killed by his creation. Jesus emptied himself of his rights and willingly offered himself as a sacrifice for us. So Philippians 2.7 does not tell us that Jesus stopped being God when he became incarnated. Rather, it reinforces the amazing mysteries of the Trinity and the incarnation, and it displays for us how great Christ's love for us was. That he would be willing to humble himself to the point of becoming like us and to give himself for us. So this passage about Christ's humility in Philippians 2 is perhaps the high point of the book. So it's interesting to see how Paul moves forward from that. In verse 12, the first word is therefore. So he's building off of this idea of what Christ has done for us. And he says, therefore, what we should do, verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So in response to the glorious work of Christ in the incarnation, Paul says, because of that, you should obey Christ. He returns to the mindset of sanctification. We already know that sanctification is secure because God is bringing it about in believers. And we find that same truth in verse 13. He gives this command marked by the phrase, Do this because God is actually producing it in you. But the imperative in verse 12 is that we must work out our salvation in the fear of God, with fear and trembling. This means that we can't just sit back and let God make us holy. We must exert effort and live in the fear of God. That's having the right mindset of sanctification. And I really think that Philippians contains some of the best and most complete teaching on sanctification in Scripture. Notice the balance that Paul is providing. On the one hand, Paul says, what Paul says guards against the fear that we could lose our salvation by our own failures and weak efforts. So he's keeping us from that ditch. But on the other hand, he's also guarding against the temptation to put forth no effort whatsoever. So we can't fall into the ditch of putting it all on ourselves, but we also can't fall into the ditch of putting it all on God. He's forcing us to consider both the truth that God works sanctification in us as we work it out ourselves. And that's, that's a display of Paul's mindset about sanctification. Now chapters 3 and 4 contain a few more areas that we must view with the right mindset. The first has to do with where we place our confidence and what we prioritize. If you look in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, he says... If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul is saying that he had more reason than anyone else on earth to find confidence in his own upbringing and achievements. But he doesn't. He doesn't find that confidence there. Look in verse 7. He says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings and becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul is saying that his confidence is not in himself. His confidence is in Christ. In terms of his relationship with God and why he is accepted by God, he places no value on what he has done. He placed supreme value instead on the object of his faith, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he knew that he was only accepted by God because of who Christ was and what he had done, not because of who Paul was and what Paul had done. And so he placed his faith, his total trust, in Jesus Christ. And he then demonstrated that faith. He showed that it wasn't just him saying that, but he demonstrated his faith by enduring suffering and being willing to do that even to the point of death. Paul was willing to suffer and die for the sake of Christ because he had his priorities straight. He had the right mindset. He was willing to lose his life to save it. And he gave up everything he once valued and desired so that he could have what he now realized was worth more than anything, eternal life in Jesus Christ. So the question that we should ask ourselves is, do I have this same mindset? Are my priorities the same as Paul? If we want to think rightly in our fallen world, we need to place our confidence solely in Jesus Christ and then make following Christ our highest priority, even if it means suffering pain, or death. Now, even though Paul endured great suffering because of his mindset, he wasn't in agony. As we said before, he wasn't just gritting his teeth and trying to get through this. He actually had joy. Paul's mindset led him to rejoice. If you you look down in chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice And joy is one of the most common themes in the book of Philippians. Joy is the expression of a proper mindset. It's what that mindset leads to. Joy is our attitude of gladness and contentment that comes not from our circumstances, but from the gospel. Happiness comes from our circumstances. Joy comes in spite of our circumstances. So you can be happy and joyful at the same time, but at at its basis level, joy, you can continue to have that attitude of joy in spite of what happens. Even if your circumstances would lead you not to be happy, you can still have this attitude of joy. Joy comes because we have the right mindset, which is informed by the truth of the gospel. And so because Paul knew that his current suffering would lead to an eternal reward, he could have joy. Because he knew that the trials of life were temporary, but the blessings of heaven were eternal, he could have joy. Because he knew that God would bring him through any persecution in the world, according to his plan, he could have joy. Because he knew that Jesus humbled himself to die in his place, he could have joy. And if we build and supplement our own mindset with these same truths about the gospel and about our lives in Christ we too can have joy. Now, There's one more passage that really evidenced Paul's mindset and specifically his joy in spite of his circumstances. Look down in in chapter 4, verse 10. 
He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So in these verses, Paul is expressing his joy and thankfulness to the Philippians because they had provided for his need. But he also adds that his joy wasn't dependent on their gift. He says, not that I speak of being in need, which is interesting because I, I would think that Paul was in need. He needed funds to pay for his rent, for his food, for his expenses. But he says, no, I, I didn't really need it. I'm really glad that you gave this to me, and I glorify God for that. But I was fine even without it. Because his joy wasn't rooted in their gift. It was rooted in Christ. He said he was content before, and he was content now, because of Jesus Christ. He is content in all circumstances, because he knows he can get through it, as he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now let's pause. What does that last phrase mean? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, when we read it after verses 10 through 12, it's clear that Paul is saying, I can have contentment no matter the circumstances. It's pretty obvious that that's what he's saying. And it's even more clear because we've been, just been looking at his attitude of joy. And we've been looking at the entire book, which talks about his contentment in Christ, his joy, his mindset in spite of trials, in spite of tribulation. So we know that he's saying, yeah, my mindset in Christ, what I know about Christ, can get me through anything. But it's interesting, when you remove all that context, when you remove the verses around it and the paragraphs around it and the chapter around it, the, the meaning becomes less clear. Because if you just take the phrase, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, with no context at all, that can mean a lot of different things, right? So that, that could mean that you have license to do whatever you want because Christ gives you permission. I can do all things through Christ. Or it could mean that you have the ability to accomplish whatever dream you set your mind of. I, can't, I can do it because Christ is strengthening me. I have a friend who has Philippians 4.13 tattooed on his bicep. Because he's confident that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. So you can make this verse say a lot of things when you take it out of context. That's the key, when you take it out of context. But when you read it in context, it's clear. So there's a lesson here that properly interpreting Scripture is really important. And in order to properly interpret Scripture, you need the context. If you want to understand what something in Scripture means, look at the context of the verses around it, of the chapters around it. Look at the context that you can find from history, from the writing of the book. That's partially why we're doing this study, to give you context as you study the Bible. And understanding the context is really important, because if you ignore it, you may end up like my friend with a tattoo that doesn't mean what you think it means. So be careful with context as you read Scripture. Now, as we come to the end of Philippians, the big idea that I hope you've come away with is that we need to have the right mindset. We need to pay attention to how we think. Philippians demonstrates what the mindset looks like in relation to our growth and holiness, to how to endure trials, how we should think about life and death, how we view others, where we place our confidence, 
how to respond with joy, and then how to find contentment. <clears throat> so the book of Philippians tells us about how this mindset affects all these different areas. But as we look at the truth of the gospel, we can apply that mindset to many other areas as well. The key to having the right mindset is to dwell on the right truth. To not just listen to what the world and our emotions are trying to tell us, but to speak truth to ourselves so that we can approach life in the right way. So I think it's fitting, as we talk about needing to dwell on truth, I think it's fitting to close with Philippians 4.8, which is Paul's recommendation of what kinds of things we should fill our mind with. So as we go out and seek to have the right mindset, let's remember these words. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things.